Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I always get interesting emails, and I'll tell you what, I so appreciate them because one of the things I know about this show is that it can be difficult to call in and ask questions for fear that someone might, well, they might recognize your voice. But I'm telling you, we do have 600,000 open downloads a week, and I've never, never run into anybody who was discovered via the show. It's pretty much synonymous. If you keep your name out of the limelight, you can ask anything you want. But in the meantime, you can always send me, Carol the Coach, an email to carol at carolthecoach.com. And I will make sure to answer it in the first 15 minutes of every show. You know, I got an email from a woman who said, you know, I have loved listening to your videos. I watch them on YouTube. And I wanted just to give you a little bit of information about myself because I want your opinion. She said, I discovered in June that my fiancé of six years had had a sexual addiction. I have been really struggling to deal with this. He's been sober from drug and alcohol addiction for 35 years, so this isn't his first rodeo with an addiction. And he sure has seemed to be on top of things. So I was shocked when I found out that he had this sex addiction. You know, he travels for his job, and he can be away from home, oh, 250-plus days a year. 
when he made his initial appointment to start seeing psychologists for some issues that were causing him stress, I had no idea that it would be sexual addiction. And she said, you know, Carol, his addiction is to live webcam models. What really makes me mad is that they seem to exploit him as much as he exploits them. And when he doesn't contact them, it's like they have some sort of spy system where they can contact him from additional sites. We've blocked everything we can, always on his new email addresses saying, hey, let's talk. I miss you. Come back. Carol, what would you suggest? How do we remove them from his email? Like I said, we've already changed email once. Yours truly. And then she gave me a name, which, of course, I am not going to repeat. You know, this is kind of difficult for me to answer because I do believe that we have a lot of technology that actually can create ability of being able to capture keystrokes, look at web websites, you know, for all I know, they could have implanted something on the webcam itself to take pictures of whatever he's doing, even though he's changed his email address. So I guess what I want to say to you is you probably should shut everything down and the two of you should share an email address. And you should see if that in some way helps to solve the problem. Because I get this. You know, live webcam models are like prostitutes in your office, in your room, in your living room. I mean, it is so invasive. They're so addictive. And I give him lots and lots of credit for wanting to rid himself of this sexual addiction. And I give you a lot of credit, too, because one of the things that we know is that there is hope and healing in the aftermath of betrayal trauma. And tonight, we're going to be giving you resources and tips to help support your journey forward, as well as it's great for sex addicts to listen to this information, too. I am having my good friend and colleague, Mari Lee, on. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified sex addiction therapist, and she is internationally recognized for her work with sex addicts and their partners. She's a business coach. She's amazing. She is the founder of Growth Counseling Services, and she has a recovery practice located in Southern California. So, you know, this woman does it all. And she's written some really um, intensive, helpful books for partners. And there is no doubt about it. She co-wrote a book with Stephanie Carnes um, called Facing Heartbreak, 
to recovery for partners of sex addicts. And she wrote Healing Betrayal, First Healing Steps for Partners of Sex and Porn Addicts. And she's got a book coming out. I've been hearing about this for a while. I cannot wait. It's The Gift in the Wound, Stories of Hope and Resiliency for Partners of Sex Addicts. And it should be out next year. So, you know, beyond her clinical work, she's known as the counselor's coach because she is a trusted business coach that helps therapists to create multiple income streams and develop successful private practices. And, I mean, I use a lot of her materials. She's amazing, and she's got such a business sense about her. And what I love most of all is, like, she is on it when it comes to legalities, when it comes to everybody being protected. She takes this work incredibly serious. And so I'm so lucky to have her on the show so that we can talk about um, the importance of intentional self-care for partners of sex addicts. You know, she and I both really believe care is the antidote for partner betrayal. And when this kind of thing happens to a partner, it is essential, crucial, and imperative to help the partner to stay focused on herself so that she can do the things she needs to do to heal. Now, Mari and I both know that the addict can also help with, with the healing process. But that is going to depend on many, many things. That's going to that's gonna depend on his recovery. How recovered is he? Has he been doing a good job? Have there been many slips? Any relapses? And is he working a program that's strong? Is he working with the right professionals, perhaps a psychiatrist or a psychologist? You know, have they done the formal disclosure? And are there safety boundaries in place? So I can't wait to talk about these important issues because you know, I have a couple of different types of clients. The men I work with are very well-intentioned. They work incredibly hard. And there is no doubt, since this is a process addiction and one of the toughest to beat, they do many times struggle. I don't mean that they relapse, but I am saying that they struggle and they need their tools. They need their resources. Corin said it the best when he said they need a whole committee to help them work through their issues. And then on occasion, I will meet somebody who seems to fly through recovery. They aren't struggling. They don't have urges and cravings. They're so excited to be in recovery that it's almost as if it produces another dopamine high. To replace the dopamine high they experience with their addiction. And I sure do wish that this could happen to everybody. But I also know that it's not a time to get cocky because truly, one of the things that can happen is that once you begin to feel like you got this and you got the addiction by the tail, it can come back and bite you because you got a little complacent. You got too familiar 
with thinking that it was easy. And so for men and women that don't have that initial struggle, they really have to keep watching. They have to watch what's in front of them. They have to watch their back. And they have to do it a day at a time. That will really be beneficial to them. And no doubt, this is a relational issue. And since recovery is not just recovery from the addiction, but it's also a relational recovery for the family, you have to be able to do both. You have to do that dance. And that's way different than it used to be. Because, of course, we used to tell people to stay on their side of the street, and we had the partners working on one side, the addicts working on the other, and they did their separate work, and now we know they really can't help each other. She can help to hold him accountable by deciding what, what needs to happen to keep herself safe, and he can help her to heal by showing empathy and communication and you know, really not running and hiding when there's conflict. Because we all know this brings out lots and lots and lots of conflict. Yes, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, and I'm Carol the Coach, and I have been doing this, I think I'm on my sixth year, soon to be seventh, I do believe, in April. And we really know that information is power, and that's why... I interview the experts, and Mari Lee is one of them. I guarantee you. She's really an incredible um, personality in this uh, field, clinically, coach-wise, and she has her own story, and she's going to be willing to share that with us tonight. So I'm wondering what kind of questions you might have. Do you need to email me at carol at carolthecoach.com so that I can answer them on podcast? You know, don't hesitate. Imagine that I'm your own personal life coach and therapist, and I'm here for you. I mean, how lucky is that, right? You got your own personal psychotherapist and life coach available to you just to be able to help you with any questions that you have. The joy of the show is that I definitely get to work with you by interviewing guests and bringing out some of your very complicated and personal stories. And then you can kind of pay that forward, share it with people that you uh, are in support with. You know, the support groups are available, and they are wonderful, and you don't have to do this alone. So with Mari's help and my help and and the rest of the guests that are on this show, we are here. So I am so excited to have on Mari Lee. Mari, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol the Coach. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I was excited to get you this week because I realized you designated this week for something really, really important, and I appreciate you coming on and helping our partners figure out what intentional self-care is all about. Oh, my goodness. It's my sincere pleasure. Glad to be here and 
and always happy to offer some support to uh, the partners out there. You know, having been uh, a partner myself, I I understand the struggle and 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 very glad to give back. Well, you really do, and and we both know that for some partners, for many partners, the discovery and dealing with active sexual addiction, or even men or women that that get into recovery, there is this aftermath of trauma that occurs. And that's why I thought it was so important to be talking about intentional self-care. Now, you mentioned it yourself. You've actually lived this life. Will you just share a little bit about your story before we talk about the 12 tenets of what I call self-care that you've outlined? Oh, I'd be happy to, sure. Uh, well, in brief, uh, I was in graduate school, you know, a million million years ago now, and um, and was in a relationship where I was very much in love and uh, was looking around for a thesis project. You know, we had to write a big thesis in our master's program, which is a big monster of a writing project, research project that goes on for about a year and a half, sometimes two years. And I was sort of wondering, you know, what I might write that on. I thought maybe I'd do that on foster care kids because I'm a former foster care kid and, um, you know, something like that. But uh, during that time, I discovered that my significant other, somebody that I was very much in love with, was um, severely addicted to pornography. Um, and I'm really not a prude. I'm more of a live and let live type of a person. Carol, so although pornography is not something that I, I um, support, you know, because of human sexual trafficking and that industry, and it's not something that I had really ever been interested in, in dabbling in or using in my sexual relationship, I, I didn't have, um, you know, it's not, it's not in my character to police somebody's sexuality, but the deception um, the constant gaslighting um, and and the sheer volume of pornography that was being uh, hoarded and looked at was devastating for me. Uh, and it led me, um, the gift in the wound, I would say, is that that became the focus of my thesis. I looked around for information. Again, this is many, many years ago. Um, four partners, and there was just nothing out there at the time. There were no workbooks. There were no books that were out there. There were I, I couldn't find a group. Everything was really focused on the sex addict at that time. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to do research. I can't be the only woman in the world who is feeling devastated by by this what I didn't know was an addiction at the time, but this compulsive collection of pornography and um, and the lying and the deception, the gaslighting that is undermining my self-confidence as a woman, as a partner, and just as a human being ambulating through the world, I just didn't get it, you know. So that took me on a journey of a couple of years going through the CSAT training program and getting connected with other women who had gone through, and men who had gone through, you know, the same um, trauma that I had experienced and I can look back on that now, Carol, though, though at the time I could never have imagined, you know, myself saying this now. I look back on that now and I really do see it as a gift because it, it really helped me um, plug into areas of my own life that needed some healing, um, some growth, some restoration, and some examination. Uh, and um, also really helped me look at the ways that I would 
uh, overcompensate in relationships um, and really just had very, you know, little understanding about boundaries and consequences and how to find my voice and all of it. So uh, it, it, it was a, a journey of intentional self-care that um, I'm, I'm grateful for now, but it was certainly hard at the time. Well, and it sounds like you really had an interesting family of origin background, and and so you may have missed some important things right off the bat, and you decided to make up for it once this occurred for you. I mean, you really did take this situation and grow exponentially from it. So I'm going to talk about some of the theories that you believe are imperative for intentional self-growth. You know, you you said something about you need a specialized therapist. Tell tell us a little bit about that. Right. So when part of my own self-care, right, investing in myself uh, through my healing process was um, going to therapy, and that was the first time. Therapy, of course, we know, Carol, is part of our graduate program. When, when you go to graduate school um, to become a therapist, part of the requirement is to um, get a certain number of hours of therapy. And so I was very new to therapy and um, really was enjoying the process. But I realized that once I had found this discovery, my therapist, though, he was a very good therapist, and I'm still very grateful for the work that I did with him, really was perplexed. You know, he, he just really didn't have the tools, the information to assist or support me. And a lot of it, you know, he did a lot of good attending and listening, and I was greatly appreciative of that. But I was longing for something more. I wanted information. I wanted to learn about um, the brain, what was going on in the brain with pornography and I wanted to understand, you know, an anxiety disorder and just a lot of things that I, I felt that I needed to work with a specialist. I, I sort of think about it like, um, you know, if I have a problem with my eyes, I'm not going to a chiropractor. You know what I mean? If there's a problem with my feet, I'm probably not going to the eye doctor. I'm going to look for a specialist to help me. So uh-huh. part of intentional self-care is to work with a therapist who has specific training in sexual compulsivity and pornography addiction and betrayal trauma. And what was very important to me was to find a therapist to work with who didn't minimize um, my own uh, traumatic responses to what was going on in my relationship, especially around the ongoing um, staggered closure, the deception and the gaslighting, and minimize that by calling me codependent or a co-addict or um, you know, uh, a prude or whatever, you know, whatever some of these labels uh, formerly were and sometimes still are for partners, um, which we know just simply adds to the trauma. So for me, that's why I think working with a specialist, especially somebody who really understands the betrayal trauma for partners is, is an imperative part of intentional self-care for partners and healing. So, Mari, obviously right now between... Oh, organizations like ITAP and APSATS, we do understand about betrayal trauma and we do understand what a partner needs. But 10, 15 years ago, that we really only had information about a sex addict. So 
how did you get your needs met? I mean, you knew this man was doing his best, but he didn't necessarily get it. So what did you do next? (laughs) Well, I did my research, right? I did my homework, and I thought, you know, if, if there's not a lot, and there weren't, you know, and I live in a big metropolis, you know, Los Angeles, but I did find a therapist um, who did have some information about partners, didn't minimize. Uh, she was great, and, and I began to do work with her. And I realized that, you know, here's the thing, Mari, if there's not a lot of uh, research and not a lot of materials and not a lot of books and uh, services and support for partners, um, P-World, then you have this thesis now, and you've done your research. Maybe it's time to consider writing a book and specializing in um, betrayal trauma for partners. And as you um, write this book, and you know you, the book is called Facing Heartbreak, um, and co- and I co-authored that with Stephanie Carnes and you know the um, the late uh, Tony Rodriguez. I just thought, you know, I'm going to learn everything that I can about this so that it can be a benefit to other women and men who are struggling through um, some of the, the uh, challenges that partners deal with, um, and especially around gaslighting, especially understanding um, boundaries, you know, how, how we can know what I call know, name, and maintain boundaries with a person who is addicted which can be very challenging in the beginning. Um, I, you know, there's FOG, uh, an acronym for fear, obligation, and guilt that some addicts use in order to, um, you know, create fog in the relationship where you feel like, wait, am I losing my mind? I know what I saw, and now this person is telling me that that's not true. And we call that gaslighting now, of course. But um, I decided to write a book and really just do my due diligence the best that I could to work with a therapist who was at least willing to learn and um, continued to draw on these correlations between other um, traumatic events and sex- the trauma of sexual betrayal. And honestly, Carol, I became a very vocal person. Um, I think, <laughs> I'm sure you'd agree, right, in our clinical world about not settling for being called codependents or labeled in particular ways, even by well-meaning therapists, right, where that was not something that I, I wanted to see happen anymore. And the, the dialogue needed to change within our clinical circles um, and the words that we use in the lexicon of sex addiction, partner trauma needed to begin to change. And I'm really proud that clinicians like myself, like you, um, and others, you know, other colleagues that we work with closely have have worked hard to make sure that partners feel respected and supported and heard and valued and that there's lots of materials and resources from many different therapists and many different organizations now that partners can draw on. And that makes me really happy. Yeah, that makes me happy. Yes. I would agree in just a short amount of time we have really worked hard on, on advocating for partners. And, again, not everybody would have had the strength that you did to go ahead and write the book. But I just want to tell our listening audience that book, Facing Heartbreak, is the Bible for a workbook to help women, men can use it too, to identify boundaries and to create their shield and identify their strengths. I mean, it truly 
meets the emotional, physical, spiritual, uh, social needs that a partner has when they're going through this kind of drama trauma. And so I would highly recommend, I, this is what I do, Mari. I have about 15 books in my office, and I sell them out of my office for you because I don't want them to have to wait. If they've come to see me and they just found out last weekend that they need something, I want them to have your book immediately. So, I mean, it's, it's just thank you, Carol, for partners. A hundred percent. Oh yeah, and you just keep writing them. I mean, healing from betrayals, chock full of exercises, and you've got this new book coming out. And I know that's what you were you are doing this week as you're really working hard on that and. And, you know, for many people, they don't know what the first steps are in getting through this. And that and healing betrayal just identifies, here's step number one, here's step number two, here's step number three. This can be the guide that gets you through the crisis. So I want to thank you for writing mm-hmm. that because you're an excellent writer anyway, but you really know, having been there, what a partner needs. Thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate your kind affirmation, and and it makes me happy. And I also, you know, I keep a stack of those um, um, Facing Heartbreak workbooks uh, in my office as well. I I tend to give them, you know, to partners so that they don't have to, you know, go to Amazon. And I have to pay for them even though, you know, I'm an author on the book. I, (laughs) you know, I still have to pay my fair share, and that's okay. I'm very glad to do that. Um, And thank you for your kind words about healing betrayal. Um, I wrote that, gosh, I want to say, what is it, Um, I guess two years ago, and then, yeah, two years ago now. And really, uh, Healing from Betrayal was an important book for me to write because I know what it's like to be that woman um, or that man who's the partner of a sexually compulsive person, and you're up late at night, and you're and you can't sleep, and you're feeling anxious and hurt um, and angry, and you're searching around on the internet for something, some guide, some roadmap, something to help you get through the first steps, and maybe that's um, you've discovered that, like my story, you know, your significant other is addicted to pornography or, or maybe you've discovered that he's or she's having an affair or multiple affairs. Maybe he or she is acting out at strip clubs or with prostitutes or whatever, whatever's going on there, whatever the sexual deception is. Um, Healing Betrayal mm-hmm. is an ebook that I wanted partners to be able to hopefully find on the giant internet, you know, but if they happen to stumble upon this ebook that, you know, the, the, you know, wee morning hours, they could download that and have a roadmap right at their fingertips of this is the first thing that you need to do. And now here's the next thing. And, you know, an explanation about what sex addiction is and what it isn't and resources and the whole thing. So I, I really, I'm glad to know that partners are going to be served and supported by the materials, you know, that I've been fortunate enough to create. And, um, and I'm very honored to know that they've been received well by, of course, our clinical community, but more importantly, by hurting individuals that are really in need of healing. So that makes me happy. And that's part of intentional self-care. It's saying, what do I need to do? Who do I need to see? What do I need to buy? 
Where do I need to go so that I'm going to be okay? I don't have any control over my significant other's behavior. I might think I do, but I really don't. And so if I can't control that, what can I control? I can control these steps forward um, and intentionally caring for myself. And that's a hard place to get to. I know. I get it. It took me a while to get there. Um, but, but, it's, but it's not impossible. You know, we have to be able to do that. So any partner that would be listening to this right now, I really encourage you to take that first step in thinking about shifting the focus over, you know, I know it's hard to steer that over to yourself, but the best that you can, shift that focus over to your own self-care and ways that you can get your head above water and um, start doing the things that you need to do um, to heal. Well, I know because you talk about the fact that that isolation um, can naturally occur and we want to keep people from feeling that sense of isolation. There are just so many questions a partner has. Who should I talk to? Who should I tell? What should I say? And then how can I feel normal and who's safe? And, you know, we know, you and I know, that partners are the the best intellectualizers, they want information, they want to make sense of a crazy situation. So they will get the books, they will do their reading, they will stay up all night, and we know that they also need to be around other people. So I want to know, you know, you said that they need to begin to create healthy, safe support systems, and you include 12-step groups, partner therapy groups, um, and specific people that can be their support. What what advice do you give women when they're not sure who is safe and who is not? Yeah, that's a great question, Carol. Because you know, some women um, some women have a really good tribe, right? A really good community and tribe of friends and family members that might be. Um, a, a trusted sibling or a mother or father or, you know, perhaps a church group or women, you know, female friends or male friends. You know, just a really good tribe of people um, that that partner can go to and safely share and not feel judged and not they're not worried that, you know, their tribe is going to judge um, the, the addict, et cetera, right? And other women don't have that. They feel, you know, for whatever reason, they feel sort of alone in their um, in, in the world. You know, maybe um, they don't have siblings, or maybe they don't have a good relationship with their family, or maybe they've been really hurt by friendships in the past. And so, because of that, you know, they are their trust is impacted, and they're feeling really vulnerable about sharing. Or maybe it's a little bit of both. But, um, you know, they're worried that if I share this with somebody, they're going to judge my significant other or um, I'm, I'm feeling ashamed because maybe they're going to think that it's something that I've done wrong or I'm not good enough. For me, I was, you know, am, I was and I am very fortunate to have a really good tribe of close girlfriends and a couple of really close, good guy friends. And so when I was going through that, and I and a real, and have a really great relationship with my younger sister, so when I was going through that, you know, I didn't tell the world. And, you know, of course, we, we know as therapists, 
uh, Carol, that it isn't helpful, even though you're in pain, and even if you are somebody who feels like you just want to share this with the world, either to unburden yourself or to punish your significant other for hurting you, whatever it is, and that's understandable, of course, it can really backfire in some cases. So it's better to sit down with a therapist or a you know, trusted, um, safe support person and decide you know, who is that person or people that I'm choosing to tell. And even better, if you can sit down with your significant other who's hopefully you know, in recovery from his or her addiction, say let's together as a couple decide who our safe support people are going to be, starting with our therapist, then our sponsors and 12-step members, and then our group. And maybe that's enough right there. You know, maybe that's where it stays. But eventually, you know, especially if there's a, a therapeutic separation in the beginning or whatever that's looking like, you know, there may be a couple mm-hmm. of friends or family members that need to be told. And then working with a the therapist, uh, or if you don't have a therapist, you know, really writing down a plan of action instead of just sort of blurting it out. Um, maybe something that you'll regret later is very, very wise to do that. And again, you, you have to decide, you know, who your safe people are. Uh, for me at the time, um, I wish, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and of course there weren't any materials or a lot of guidance for partners back then. And so because I had, you know, really and have really close girlfriends, I shared with my sister and all of my girlfriends, you know, And now, if I could go back, I would share, you know, caution my younger self not to do that because it's a big ask for my dear friends not to then have had judgment for him, right? And not to have sort of passed judgment and been very upset. And it just sort of made things um, more difficult, you know. Uh, So choose wisely the people that you're going to share this with. And if you are in a place with your significant other where he or she is willing to go to therapy and stay in recovery, it's really important to discuss a plan of action, if you can, with that person so that there's an agreement on who you'll tell. And there's a whole roadmap in uh, Facing Heartbreak, know how to do that. We're not just sending you out in the world without any tools. You know, There's a plan that you can, you can put in place. Well, and I know you and I both believe that for a partner to really determine what she or he needs to do, they have to know to the best of their ability the truth. And formal disclosure is one of the best ways to get the truth if the partner feels that need. I mean, I always defer to the partner. It's whatever you want as a partner. Yeah. However, it really is a wonderful opportunity with a trained professional to go through the guidelines of a formal disclosure both for the addict and the partner so that they do get get the truth and they are able to talk about what today is going to look like and tomorrow, you know. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about how you do disclosures because I happen to know how you do use disclosures. I use your materials, but tell us <laughs> why you think it's so important to do them in a formalized way. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you, Carol. So, it, so just in case there's maybe you know one of your listeners, I know your show is really popular, Carol, and I'm so thankful we have your show here in the world. It's it's just such a resource. 
Um, if there is a person who's listening, and this is maybe something new they've not heard of before, when you're working uh, with a sex addiction therapist, somebody who specializes in sex addiction, like a CSAT, for example, a certified sex addiction therapist, um, part of the recovery with the addict, and I work with both partners and addicts, by the way. I think because I've written so many materials for partners, sometimes um, people, for good reason, think that I just work with partners. But I actually work lately with more addicts than I work with partners, and um, and I and I love working with addicts as well. But one of the things when I'm working with an addict um, is, and I let he and his partner know, um, one of the things that you'll be going through if you choose to do this would be what's called full formal disclosure. And that's where we take you through a process of disclosing all the secrets putting everything out on the table in a particular way. So he's not, for example, disclosing, you know, intimate details of the sexual encounter or describing intimate details of body parts or anything that could leave um, the partner in more trauma. But he is taking full ownership of people, places, and things, you know, money spent, timelines, um, unprotected, protected sex, every single um, act of infidelity that has happened in the course of, of their relationship. Sometimes the partner will request, like you, Carol, I really love that you said that, by the way, that you really honor what the partner wants. And I think when we educate the partner about here's, here's why formal disclosure can be helpful, but ultimately it's your decision, and I support and respect whatever your decision is. Um, some partners, in fact, in my um, experience, most partners want that. Um, some partners, if it's been decades of gaslighting in the relationship, they'll even request a um, polygraph, which is not unusual. Um, some partners don't want that, by the way, and so we need to respect that as well. Once we do the education around that, we we do need to respect if that's not what they want. Um, and so formal disclosure can be... Um, a traumatic event, an anxiety-provoking event for both the addict going through it and the partner, of course. Even though there's a relief in hearing all the secrets laid bare, just sitting in that formal disclosure meeting for the partner can be quite traumatizing, even if she knows all of the secrets because she's discovered something, right, Carol? It's still a really, it can be a very activating and traumatizing event for the partner to rehear all of this. So that's why it's very important to work with a therapist. Um, you know, you talked about having my materials. I created those formal, that formal disclosure packet for therapists because so many therapists we're going through the formal disclosure process with clients, well-meaning therapists, highly trained CSAT therapists even, and they just had no roadmap. They were kind of flying by the seat of their pants, not really understanding that there's what I call, you know, there are, are four stages to disclosure. And, of course, every disclosure is different. There's not just one golden rule for all disclosures. We have to meet the couple where they're at. But we still need a roadmap to really bookend and guide that couple for the, for, I think it's only ethical to do that and to meet the highest standard of care. So first we want to make sure that the couple is prepped and so there are worksheets that are filled out and of course each um, person in the coupleship is working with their individual therapist. Um, the addict is preparing a sex history timeline and the disclosure letter, the partner is compiling a list of questions that she might have 
the therapist is working with her to help her reduce trauma, to help her get grounded, to help her find her voice, to help her find her center, and a lot of other things we do with partners. And then we move into, of course, the second stage, which is the actual formal disclosure meeting where both the partner and the addict's therapist are involved in the meeting. And there's a whole process around that. And then the third step is the partner then writes her what's called an emotional impact letter. And again, we do due diligence as therapists. We don't shortcut the partner on this. We support her. Um, There are worksheets that are filled out. Um, And then we have our um, emotional impact, how, how the addict's behavior impacted the partner. So we sit down in a meeting and dedicate that time for the partner Um, among healing witnesses. And then finally, we've got what's called the emotional restitution letter, which is where the addict, really that's his letter of atonement, apology, ownership, and all of those things. Um, And again, that's a dedicated uh, meeting for the couple. So when done um, with sensitivity and compassion and focus, formal disclosure can be a beautifully... um, healing really a beautiful healing time for the couple but you you have to walk that couple through it very carefully very thoughtfully and frankly um, therapists also really need to make sure that they are doing their due diligence um, around their own liability issues you want to think about have you made sure that the couple understands that they don't have to go through formal disclosure. Have you, in writing, made sure that the couple understands that you cannot promise that the marriage or relationship is going to um, stay intact after formal disclosure? Yeah, survive. All of those, exactly, exactly, survive that. And there's a number of other things. You know, what are the rules around formal disclosure? They need to drive separately oftentimes. You know, sometimes not, but oftentimes yes. Um, do we allow purses in the formal disclosure? What about recording devices? What about how the couple is showing up? Has somebody been drinking? There's so many legal aspects to creating a formal disclosure that reduces liability for the therapist. And therapists, because we care about our clients, we want to do right by our clients, we want to help these couples, we sometimes forget about the legal paperwork that really needs to be in place. So as part of my formal disclosure packet for therapists, I make sure that all of those forms, those legal forms and consent forms for therapists are there. And I encourage therapists to make sure that those are signed so that, one, you're protected, but also the client is fully informed about what they're entering into, which is really important. You know, one of the things that I know to be true, because I do follow your format, is that in 95% of the cases, the formal disclosure is actually therapeutic. Even if new information is given, it it, it allows the partner to feel like she now finally has the truth so she can make an informed decision. And people leave my office typically in much better shape than they come in because they don't know what they're going to hear. They're so used to the, the staggered disclosures that they're mm-hmm. afraid. Well, they're, oftentimes their fantasies and their imagination is actually worse than the information given. So mm-hmm. that is why I really like this process. Now, I personally 
um, it is always up to the partner as to whether a disclose, um, excuse me, a polygraph is used, but I find it imperative. It really helps the addict to be 100% honest, mm-hmm. and it yep. helps her to know that she's not getting more of the same information that's been watered down, minimized, rationalized, or justified. She's getting the questions that she helped to construct for the formal dis- disclosure. I mean, it is such an integrative process where she's creating questions, he's creating a timeline, and then if they decide to do that polygraph, she and the therapist work on the polygraph questions. So she really gets as much information as possible in a one, two, or three-hour session. I myself book three hours. I want to make sure they have enough time. And um, you're right, that aftercare program, again, intentional self-care, is to make sure that she's going to go and do something that's going to help to calm her brain and her nerves um, where she may get some extra support and some extra physical um, relaxation, you know, maybe she takes a yoga class, maybe she goes for a massage, maybe she goes for a long walk, maybe she runs to the library. I mean, truly, it is a process that takes all day from start to finish. And again, for any therapist who's listening, this is what I really advise is necessary if the partner wants it. You know, you and I both said she may not want it, and that's absolutely fair, too. Maybe she's avoidant. Maybe she's scared. Maybe she thinks her brain is so filled with information she doesn't want to add anything else to it at the present time. That is up to her, and it empowers the partner. And I think that's intentional self-care, too. Is it not, Mari, when, when well, we give partners choices? Oh, absolutely, yes. Beautifully stated. I think that's the, the the first thing that I let a partner know is, you know, you're the expert in your life and your relationship, and I'm an expert in my clinical field. But together, we're going to link elbows, and we're going to be a team together, right, where your voice is just as important and more important than my voice in this room. This is your time. You know, I have tools and I have um you know, uh, materials and skills and psychoeducation and, you know, all the things that we come equipped with as uh, licensed clinicians, but your voice needs to be the voice that fills this room. And so part of the way that I have found for those partners, and again, it's kind of rare. Most partners really are interested in moving through formal disclosure, but for those partners who are anxious about it or resistant to it, my job is not to convince them. My job is just to help to make space, create a safe holding space so that they can explore that resistance and see what's, you know, really informing that and see what that looks like for them. And oftentimes there's just so much good stuff that we're able to heal and discover and um, through that process even of resisting, you know, formal disclosure. So our job is not to convince anyone of anything. Our job is to hold space and provide tools and education and all of the good healing work that we do. And to me, watching the wind come back, there's nothing sadder, I think, than watching a partner come into the office. And it's almost like I can see her broken wings dragging behind her as she's walking you know, toward my office to sit down. And 
I can just sort of see those wings just sort of broken on the ground. Um, and they're sort of dirty and they've lost some feathers. And I just feel so, so much for that partner. It's a deep empathy. It's not, it's not pity because I didn't want anybody's pity. It's a, just a deep empathy because I've been in those shoes before. And then over the time that I work with a partner, watching those wings get stronger, right, and all of a sudden they're up in the air and the feathers are there and they look nice and strong and they're doing better. And not only are, is their relationship healing if they choose to stay in the relationship, you know, parts of their unresolved past, right, so it could be family trauma, that predate the relationship or marriage, all of that stuff is being healed and they're finding their voice at work and they're finding new ways of naming their boundaries with friends and family and they're learning about themselves and oftentimes they're saying, you know what, forget it. I don't like this job anymore. I want to try this or I want to go back to school. They're learning to advocate for themselves and that to me is one of the best gifts in the wound. So much is healed during the process of partner's therapy and that makes me really happy to see that that's a great gift well absolutely and certainly there's all sorts of programs that people can go through to seek healing and we don't have time to name them all but one of the tenets of the 12 step work is when you get to feeling healthier you give that back and partners are so good at wanting to give back the sanity that they now feel having gone through this ordeal and feeling their empowerment and feeling their own sense of identity and strength. And that's really what we want to do. We want to empower partners to know that even though this is probably one of the most horrific things that could have ever happened to them, that they can come through the other side and and become stronger and and have a better sense of boundaries. You know, I do believe boundaries and triggers are the two things for a partner that are the hardest to manage and navigate through. And so much of therapy and support groups and intensives and workshops help partners to figure out what they can do to manage that better so that they have more self-control and um, can give it back later on. Oh, I love that, Carol. Yeah, I think I absolutely agree with you on that. And I think part the, the the challenging part about boundaries, right? It's not just you know sometimes the partner doesn't even really know what their boundaries are, right? And sometimes if they do know what their boundaries are, they they're not really sure how to name it. Either they are afraid to name it, or when they do name their boundary, they're so hurt that it comes out as a primal scream, right? Or um, and the, or they don't know how to maintain, you know. So what if he, you know, they might say something like, "Mari, I have named my boundaries before." He doesn't care. He just crosses my boundaries at whim. And then what? You know, what what am I supposed to do? Just divorce him? And that's the big thing right there. That's the key element is to help partners understand that what a consequence looks like, what it, what the on ramp and the off ramp is. And what I mean by that, what I teach partners is. You know, we don't have to go from zero to 100 unless you want to. Uh, What you can do is you can start naming what I call the difference between organic consequences and tangible consequences. So you can use an I statement and say, our relationship with you using pornography, that is a boundary violation for me. And you're an adult 
you're an adult, and if you choose to use pornography, that's your right. However, the consequence of you making that choice to violate my boundary is that I will begin to, will continue to lose hope in our relationship, or I will continue to lose attraction toward you, or I will continue to lose uh, trust in you, whatever that is, right? We start with just finding our voice, naming what the consequence is, that, that organic feeling consequence. And so then oftentimes the partner will say to me, Mari, I've said that before to him. He doesn't care if I'm losing hope. He doesn't care if I'm losing trust. He doesn't care if my attraction is going down for him. He's still going to use his drug, whether it's sex, pornography, whatever that is. And he doesn't care. Mike and I understand that. I was there. I get it. But the idea is that the more you begin to practice naming, finding your voice and naming those organic consequences, and you begin to practice that pretty soon, you're going to have the confidence to step in to the next level, which is naming the tangible consequence, right? Now, I'm no longer willing to have you sleep in our bedroom. I I no longer want to share a marital bed with you. You need to go sleep in the guest room. That is a tangible consequence. Or I'm no longer willing to have you um, touch me without my request or I'm no longer willing to have unprotected sex with you or I'm no longer willing to have you living under this house with me. I'm no longer willing to have you attend family functions and holidays with me. I'm no longer willing to stay in this marriage, right? So we hope that the, that, you know, the couple is healing and, and doing what they need to do in terms of recovery before it gets to the point of, a therapeutic separation or a clinical, uh, pardon me, a um, legal separation or a divorce, but it's really entirely up to the addict and the couple, right? So helping partners understand, I think boundaries are so difficult for partners for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is, is they don't understand how they can implement a consequence and begin to practice that and, and really begin to build faith in themselves, Right. I absolutely know that you're exactly right. And, Mari, we've got to do a whole show on boundaries just to give our listening audience a little bit more information. I love the way you uh, categorize that. And I want to remind our listening audience, because we're at the end of the show, Mari has a website, and you can buy her books through Amazon. You can probably go to your website, can't they? Yes, they can. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so remind them of what your website is. Okay, great. So the website is called thecounselorscoach.com. Again, that, that's thecounselorscoach.com. And there are, um, you know, Facing Heartbreak and Healing Betrayal is there. And then the Formal Disclosure Packet for Therapists is there. Marley, we have to end, but thank you so much. Please let me have you back on the show again. <laughs> oh, it would be my I absolute pleasure. You. Thank you for all the good, good, good work that you continue to do, the wonderful messages that you're putting out in the world. It's just a real honor to be here. Thank you, Carol. You're welcome, Mari. And you have a great week, too. Okay, so that was Mari Lee. And again, her website is thecounselorscoach.com, www.thecounselorscoach.com. Hey, it's been a great show. Gotta go. Face your fears head on, and we'll talk to you soon.